Welcome everybody to the America Unhinged podcast. I'm your host, Cosmic Marauder. Follow me at Cosmic Marauder at FreeJerry88 on Twitch. Tonight we have a very rather rather disturbing episode. One story that ran under the radar a bit the last week and a half to two weeks was this disturbing series of documents sued for by Judicial Watch, where they obtained documents showing certain universities, government institutions, National Institute of Health were seeking out minority fetuses at Planned Parenthood clinics, sometimes being birthed at up to 42 weeks, which is post-term, which longer longer than what is necessary for a fetus to be deemed a viable offspring. With that news article, I just kind of wanted to give a backdrop to the history of American eugenics all the controversies bestowed upon Planned Parenthood and before that, the American Birth Control League prior to that. And we're going to link this to the depopulation agenda and talk about how it still seems to be in full force today. Um, Give me a follow on Buzzsprout. If you haven't checked out my other podcast, I got some episodes on the Oklahoma City bombing style FBI informant infiltration episode and how it related to the government with Murplock and other bad uh, actors throughout recent U.S. political history that we might have seen in other uh, similar false banner instances. But let's go ahead and just make this connection a little bit. Eugenics was... In an ideology that was first, dis- I don't know, I don't want to say discovered, I would say developed and critically researched in the United States first, and then kind of <clears throat> exported out to Europe and the rest of the world. Obviously, Nazi Germany, other movements uh, kind of ga- gained a little bit more credit for this, but... Th- I'm going to show you how so how several prominent eugenicists here in the United States were working together seem to have a com a common socialist one world government technocratic view of society and seem to be really gearing us towards a population crash. It seems to be orchestrated. It seems to be kicking up full steam ahead. Right now, the last couple of years, we'll talk about the vaccine agenda, and we'll also talk about uh, Bill Gates' blunders around the world. We're going to look at this article first. This is from History News Network. The Horrifying American Roots on Nazi Eugenics by Edwin Black. Edwin Black is the author of IBM and the Holocaust and War Against the Weak, Eugenics and America's Campaign to Create a Master Race. This is what this article is from. I'm going to read a long excerpt about this. Stick with me. And we'll just 
check out the early origins of this movement and how it has become so prominent via birth control and planned put there's a planned parenthood on almost every corner now it's it's quite alarming eugenics was the racist pseudoscience determined to wipe away all human beings deemed unfit preserving only those who conform to a nordic stereotype elements of the philosophy were enshrined as national policy by forced sterilization and segregation laws as well as marriage restrictions enacted in 27 states In 1909, California became the third state to adopt such laws. Ultimately, eugenics practitioners coercively sterilized some 60,000 Americans, barred the marriage of of thousands, forcibly segregated thousands in, quote, colonies, and persecuted untold numbers in ways we are just learning. Before World War II, nearly half of coercive sterilizations were done in California, and even after the war, the state accounted for a third of all such surgeries. California was considered an epicenter of American eugenics movement. During the 20th century's first decades, California's eugenicists included potent but little-known race scientists, such as Army venereal disease specialist Dr. Paul Popino, citrus magnet and polytechnic benefactor Paul Gosney, Sacramento baker Charles M. Gothi, as well as members of the California State Board of Charities and Corrections and the University of California Board of Regents. California State Board of Charities and Corrections, right? Pretty uh, pretty interesting that charity foundations would possibly be tied to the judicial system. I wonder what that phrase corrections means right there. Eugenics would have been so much bizarre parlor talk if it had not been for extensive financing by corporate philanthropies specifically the Carnegie Institution, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Harriman Railroad Fortune. They were all in league with some of America's most respected scientists, hailing from such prestigious universities as Stanford, Yale, Harvard, and Princeton. These academicians espoused race theory and race science and then faked a twisted data to serve eugenics racist aims. Stanford President David Starr Jordan originated the notion of race and blood in his 1902 racial epistle, Blood of a Nation, in which the university scholar declared that human qualities and conditions such as talent and poverty were passed through the blood. In 1904, the Carnegie Institution established a laboratory complex at Cold Springs Harbor on Long Island that stockpiled millions of index cards on ordinary Americans. As researchers carefully plotted the removal of families, bloodlines, and whole peoples from Cold Spring Harbor, which exists to this very day, eugenics advocates agitated the legislatures of America, as well as the nation's social service agencies and associations. The Harriman Railroad Fortune paid local charities, such as the New York Bureau of Industries and Immigration, to seek out Jewish, Italian, and other immigrants in New York and other crowded cities, and subject them to deportation, trapped-up confinement, or forced sterilization. The Rockefeller Foundation helped found the German eugenics program, and even funded the program that Joseph Mengele worked in before he went to Auschwitz. Much of the spiritual guidance and political agitation for the American eugenics movement came from California's quasi-autonomous eugenics societies, such as the Pasadena-based Human Betterment Foundation, and the California branch of the American Eugenics Society, 
which coordinated much of their activity at the Eugenics Research Society in Long Island. These organizations, which were which functioned as part of a closely knit network, published racist eugenic newsletters as pseudoscientific journals, such as Eugenical News and Eugenics, and propagandized for the Nazis. Eugenics was born as a scientific curiosity in the Victorian age. In 1863, Sir Francis Galton, a cousin of Charles Darwin, theorized that if talented people only married other talented people, the results would be measurably better offspring. At the turn of the last century, Galton's ideas were imported into the United States, just as Gregor Mendel's principles of heredity were rediscovered. American eugenic advocates believed with religious fervor that the same Mendelian concepts determining the color and size of peas, corn, and cattle also govern the social and intellectual character of man. In an America demographically reeling from immigration upheaval and torn by post-reconstruction chaos, race conflict was everywhere in the 20th century. Elitist utopians and so-called progressives fuse their smoldering race fears and class bias with their desire to make a better world. They reinvented Galta's eugenics into a repressive and racist ideology. The intent? Populate the earth with vastly more of their own socioeconomic and biological kind, and less or none of everyone else. The superior species the eugenics movement sought was populated not merely by tall, strong, talented people. Eugenicists craved blonde, blue-eyed Nordic types, this group alone, they believed, was fit to inherit the earth. In the process, the movement intended to subtract emancipated Negroes, immigrant Asian laborers, Indians, Hispanics, East Europeans, Jews, dark-haired hill folk, poor people, man firm, and really anyone classified outside the gentrified genetic lines drawn up by American raceologists. How? By identifying so-called defective family trees and subjecting them to lifelong segregation and sterilization programs to kill their bloodlines. The grand plan was to literally wipe away the reproductive capability of those deemed weak and inferior, the so-called unfit. The eugenicists hoped to neutralize the viability of 10% of the population at a sweep until none were left except themselves. 18 solutions were, were explored in a Carnegie-supported 1911 preliminary report of the Committee of the Eugenics Section of the American Breeders Association to study it to report on the best practical means for cutting off the defective germ plasm in the human population. That's the title. Point eight was euthanasia. The most commonly suggested method of eugenicide in America was a lethal chamber or public locally operated gas chambers. In 1918, Popano the Army Venereal Disease Specialist during World War I, co-wrote the widely used textbook Applied Eugenics, which argued, from an historical point of view, the first method which presents itself is execution. Its value in keeping up the standard of the race should not be underestimated. Applied Eugenics also devoted a chapter to lethal selection, which operated, quote, through the destruction of the individual by some adverse feature of the environment, such as excessive cold or bacteria, or by bodily deficiency, unquote. Eugenic breeders believed American society was not ready to implement an organized lethal solution, but many mental institutions of doctors practiced improvised medical lethality and passive euthanasia on their own. One institution in Lincoln, Illinois, fed its incoming patients milk from tubercular cows, believing a eugenically strong individual would be immune. 
30 to 40% annual death rates resulted at Lincoln. Some doctors praised passive genocide, one newborn infant at a time. Practice, sorry, passive genocide, one newborn infant at a time. Other doctors at mental institutions engaged in lethal neglect. Nonetheless, with eugenicide marginalized, the main solution for eugenicists was the rapid expansion of forced segregation and sterilization, as well as more marriage restrictions. California led the nation, performing nearly all sterilization procedures with little or no due process. In its first 25 years of eugenic legislation, California sterilized 9,782 individuals, mostly women. Many were classified as, quote, bad girls, diagnosed as passionate, oversexed, or sexually wayward. At Sonoma, some women were sterilized because of what was deemed an abnormally large clitoris or labia. In 1933 alone, at least 1,278 coercive sterilizations were performed, 700 of which were on women. The state's two leading sterilization mills in 1933 were Sonoma State Home with 388 operations and Patton State Hospital with 363 operations. Other sterilization centers included Agnews, Mendocino, Napa, Norwalk, Stockton, and Pacific Colony State Hospitals. Even the United States Supreme Court endorsed aspects of eugenics. Its infamous 1927 decision, Buck v. Bell, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote, quote, It is better for all of the world, instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for a crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough, unquote. This decision opened the floodgates for thousands to be coercively sterilized or otherwise persecuted as subhuman. Years later, the Nazis at the Nuremberg trials quoted Holmes' words in their own defense. That's just an excerpt, excerpt from this book, this article. I'm just wanting to tell you this is not an old idea. This idea, strangely, is as British-American as apple pie and other pastries, you know. <laughs> but... We're going to leave you with that food for thought for a second while we finish this song from Jason Hine, Mo uh, Open Road, I think. Thank you. 
That was Open Road by Jason Hines. I want to take a look at this next article from the Embryo Project. American Eugenics Society, 1926 to 1972. This society still very much exists today. They've rebranded several times throughout history, just like a like a pharmaceutical company might rebrand after putting out a damaging drug or other companies that are putting out dangerous products. Very similar kind of format playbook, how it seems, it seems to play out. Very interesting. The American Eugenics Society was established in the U.S. by Madison Grant Henry, Harry H. Laughlin, who was, uh, was very inspirational to Margaret Sanger and the formation of Planned Parenthood. Henry Crampton, Irving Fisher, and Henry F. Osborne in 1926 to promote eugenics education programs for the U.S. public. The AES described eugenics as the study of improving the genetic composition of humans through controlled reproduction of different races and classes of people. The AES aided similar eugenics efforts, such as the Galton Society in New York, New York, and the Race Betterment Foundation of Battle Creek, Michigan, and influenced eugenic policies set by the U.S. Supreme Court in cases including Buck v. Bell, 1927, and Skinner v. Oklahoma, 1942. The AES was renamed the Society for the Study of Social Biology in 1972. You see how this movement basically morphs itself into progressivism, sociology, critical race theory further down the line. There's like a straight thread between all of these philosophies. It's a technocratic worldview. Woodrow Wilson-esque, United Nations, climate change, you name it. This is all interrelated. Let's continue with the article. Before the formation of the AES, several other eugenic organizations helped lead to the AES. The increasing international interest in eugenics from 1904 to 1926 spurred the Carnegie Institution of Washington in 1904 to create the Station for Experimental Evolution at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in Cold Spring Harbor, New York. Geneticist Albert F. Blakesley and Charles Davenport had helped establish the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in 1890. Davenport, the director of the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, had connections to the Eugenics Record Office and later recruited Laughlin to serve as the ERO's director. In 1906, John H. Kellogg, a medical doctor, founded the Race Betterment Foundation of Battle Creek, Michigan. The Race Betterment Foundation sponsored three conferences between 1914 and 1928 culminating in the 1928 formation of a eugenics registry for family biological records. The American Museum of Natural, Natural History in New York financed the Galton Society. The Galton Society took its name after its founder, Francis Galton, a UK eugenicist and cousin of Charles Darwin. The Galton Society focused on racial anthropology and was involved with the Eugenics Education Society in London, England, which played a major role in the 1908 foundation of the English Eugenics Society. In 1912, Leonard Darwin, son of naturalist Charles Darwin, held the first International Congress of Eugenics in London. One of 300 people from England, Europe, and the U.S. attended his conference. The growing support for eugenics in the next decade prompted the Eugenics Record Office of Cold Spring Harbor and the American Museum of Natural History to sponsor the 1921 Second International Congress of Eugenics in New York, New York. Scientist Alexander G. Bell served as honorary president. During the Second International Congress of Eugenics, Irving Fisher from Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, proposed the American Eugenics Society. Fisher stressed a need for widespread eugenics education in the U.S. 
With that proposal, Osborne, president of the International Congress, appointed an interim committee that worked on the AES until its formal incorporation on January 30th, 1926. Fisher served as, as a society's first president. Davenport, director of Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, was the first vice president. Among the society's presidents, Laughlin, who served as president from 1927 to 1929, promoted eugenical sterilization in the early 20th century U.S. Multiple committees formed within the AES to target different aspects of eugenic education. Examples of such committees included the Committee on Crime Prevention, whose work published the Chicago Municipal Court in Chicago, Illinois, to publish Laughlin's Eugenical Sterilization in the United States. The credibility of the AES increased due to the involvement of Clark Worcester, curator of the anthropology section in the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and Sewell Wright, a U.S. geneticist. From the 1920s to the 1930s, some of the AES's work was presented at state and local fairs. Contests called Fitter Family Contests involved popular competitions between families and couples to determine who would produce the most viable offspring based on physical appearance, behavior, intelligence, and health. Exhibits had flashy red lights to emphasize statistics of birth rates of able-bodied people compared to what organizers called degenerates. Statisticians claim that while every 16 seconds a child was born in the U.S., they also said that not all children were of the same caliber. According to the exhibits, a capable child was born every seven and a half minutes, whereas a feeble-minded child every 48 seconds, and a future criminal every 50 seconds. To display potential economic benefits of adopting eugenics, the exhibits included the statistic that every 15 seconds, $100 of taxpayer money went towards supporting mentally ill parents. We got one more paragraph here. Just bear with me, and then we'll get on to some audio clips for you. The goals and actions of the AES changed over the years, depending on different presidencies of the organization. Henry F. Perkins, who was president from 1931 to 1933, worked with the Birth Control League, the predecessor of Planned Parenthood and a U.S. sexual reproductive health care center. Margaret Sanger called Noel Slee at the time of membership a member of the AES in 1956, established the American Birth Control League in 1921. The American Birth Control League became a part of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America in 1942. In the 1960s, President Harry Shapiro claimed that increasing the use of birth control gave the potential to improve the quality of the U.S. population. As you see with this article here, there's been a movement throughout the whole 20th century to push Medical intervention, be it sterilizations, uh, abortions. Now we're seeing late-term and post-birth abortions, which we'll finish up on. Um, we're seeing the rushing of this vaccine, this medical treatment right now during this pandemic. And uh, we really have to ask ourselves, why are they forcing this down people's throats so much? How did this all become so mainstream? How is Bill Gates and his vaccine campaigns such a widely accepted phenomenon that people don't even question it anymore. The average, quite frankly, dumb person in the United States didn't think twice about getting this new vaccine therapy. It's, I think it's the slow burn. It's the slow mainstreaming of abortion, Planned Parenthood, uh, societies like this that were, that just flourished in the United States run right under people's, noses and a lot of individuals bought the propaganda and now it's just become commonplace that certain things 
okay, so many people here are pro-choice in this country, but if you told them that babies can be aborted at nine months and that the mothers would get funding from the government, a paycheck for carrying the baby to a term and then having the abortion, they just won't believe you. They just will not give you the time of day. And it's, uh, it's quite amazing <laughs> to see, to be honest. Here's a short history of Planned Parenthood by the Alliance Defending Freedom. And this will give you a basic background on Margaret Singer and her role in this. And then we'll have some Corbett report right after. On Twitch, you'll see this video clip. Recent videos released by the Center for Medical Progress reveal Planned Parenthood's inhumane treatment of unborn children and its executives negotiating the sale of baby hearts, lungs, and livers. Another boy! Another boy! Boy! How did we get to this point? To understand present-day Planned Parenthood, we should understand Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood's founder and hero. Margaret Sanger was a big proponent of negative eugenics, which was the viewpoint that you should weed out unfit people from the bloodline. So that would be encouraging people not to procreate if they were unfit, feeble-minded, had any kind of mental illness, and that also included forced sterilization. Words like unfit and feeble-minded were used to describe not only the poor and mentally ill, but also to describe African-Americans. Margaret Singer stated that birth control is nothing more or less than the facilitation of the process of weeding out the unfit, of preventing the birth of defectives or of those who will become defectives. In 1921, Margaret Sanger founded the American Birth Control League. Its primary mission was to prevent uncontrolled procreation and establish a world program of birth control. She states, knowledge of birth control is essentially moral. Its general, though prudent practice, must lead to a higher individuality and ultimately to a cleaner race. Margaret Sanger stated that the most merciful thing that the large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. In 1939, Sanger wrote a letter to her eugenics colleague, Dr. Clarence Gamble, a member of the Birth Control Federation of America, in regards to setting up the Negro Project, a birth control clinic for African-Americans. She was speaking about serving what she called the Negro population. And in concluding this portion of the letter, she stated that we do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. Sanger believed that having an African-American minister on staff would ease the suspicion. African-American populations were... People are wondering why the vaccine hesitancy is most so among minorities right now in this country. Having it's right here. African-Americans serve other African-Americans so they wouldn't be aware that they were seeking to terminate them, to exterminate them by the use of birth control and negative eugenics. Sanger was quite fond of Dr. Ernst Rudin's work, director for the Society for Racial Hygiene. He would later go on to write Nazi Germany's sterilization laws. In 1933, she published his article, Eugenic Sterilization, An Urgent Need, which promoted programs to eliminate the unfit in order to create a super race. In the late 1930s and 40s, knowledge of Nazi atrocities made words like eugenics and population control unpopular in America. So in 1942, to distance itself in name, Margaret Sanger's American Birth Control League became Planned Parenthood. They weren't just being established in the U.S. It was global. 
a grim fact in American history was the forced sterilization of women in Puerto Rico. In 1936, sterilization programs spearheaded by the International Planned Parenthood Federation with funding from the U.S. government sterilized one-third of Puerto Rican women by 1968, making it the highest proportion of childbearing aged persons sterilized in the world. And today... Planned Parenthood facilities are generally located in low-income areas, which are heavily populated with minorities. And a lot of times they seek to reach those minorities to help them with reproductive rights, they say, with birth control and largely abortion. Independent studies have concluded that nearly 80% of Planned Parenthood facilities are set up in minority communities. It's no wonder abortion is the leading cause of death among African Americans, higher than all other causes combined. Mounting evidence against Planned Parenthood's beginning to today continues to fuel public outcry. The American people should seek to immediately defund Planned Parenthood so that our own tax dollars don't go to support this organization who has been exposed to be lying to the American people for many years for committing these egregious acts against the youngest children among us. They should be immediately defunded. That was a pretty compelling video right there from the Alliance Defending Freedom. You heard the audio on that if you're listening to the podcast. And I understand people might still be thinking like, surely like birth control can't be racist. It can't be all completely bad. There's got to be some good reasons for it. Uh there's no way they could be this open with their agenda, right? Well, I'm going to play a clip from Planned Parenthood Exposed on the Corbett Report, episode 271 from 2013. Corbett Report is open source intelligence news. He really just wants people to share these videos and these clips. He's been banned from YouTube. Google's not too kind to him either, so go straight to his site. I'm going to play this from the 1841 mark. Uh, we'll just go ahead and listen to it for a good five or six minutes also, gain a more in-depth understanding of uh, of how Planned Parenthood works right now. In 2008, the group came under fire for agreeing to accept funds to specifically fund abortions for blacks in Oklahoma. Could, would it be possible for me to, to donate that money specifically for these, these minority groups so that they could have access to abortions? Yes, it would be. Wonderful. And could I specify that abortion be done, uh, those abortions be done for a particular minority group, or how does that work? If you wish, you can. Okay. So, so for example, the black community in Tulsa, would it be possible to, to give the money specifically for that? You sure can. Wonderful. Great. The abortions will be done specifically for the, the black community abortions. I can. I will mark it in such a way that definitely it will. On a black baby. Yes. Thank you. Great. And in New Mexico. Um, can I make the donation specifically for a minority group? Like a specific group yeah. of color? Like a yeah. group of... I mean, like, I want the abortion to be for an African-American baby. Okay. And I was wondering if that could be possible. The exact amount we charge right now is $450 for an abortion. Okay, $450. And um, we can definitely designate it for an African-American. Wonderful. Um, And in Ohio. If you specifically want it to underwrite an abortion for a minority person, you can target it that way. You can can specify that that's how you want it spent. Okay, yeah, because there's... So I de- there's definitely way too many black people in Ohio, so I'm just trying to do my part. 
Okay, whatever. And in Idaho. I want to I want to specify that abortion to help a minority group. Would that be possible? Absolutely. Like the black community, for example. Certainly. Okay. So, so the abortion could could be you know I can give money specifically for a black baby. That would that be the purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you wanted to designate that you wanted your gift to be used to help an African-American woman in need, mm -hmm. um, then we would certainly uh, make sure that that gift was earmarked specifically for that purpose. Great, because I really face trouble with affirmative action, and I don't want my kids being disadvantaged, you know, against um, black kids. I just had a baby. I want to put it in his name, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you know so that's, that's definitely yeah. possible. Oh, always, always. So well, those phone calls undeniably demonstrate parent Planned Parenthood's willingness to at least tell its donors that their donations can be earmarked to kill certain races of unborn babies. But it can be argued, and it certainly has been, that, well, these were just individual, although multiple and, and different, examples of low-level workers who were just saying this on the phone in order to get donations. This wasn't an institutional organizational policy, surely. Well, unfortunately, sadly, evidence can be found that there are much deeper-seated issues of organizational and institutional targeting of minority populations for abortion services by Planned Parenthood. This was a topic that was raised and documented in a great deal of depth in a really remarkable and highly recommended documentary called Ma'afa 21 that I will put the link to in the show notes as always so you can follow and watch this documentary in its entirety. I can't stress enough how important this documentary is in tying various threads together in this overall picture of the eugenicist racist uh, agenda of Planned Parenthood and, and their ilk. But in this particular clip, they demonstrated how minority communities were indeed targeted by the organization. In 1973, the year abortion was legalized nationwide, Dr. Christopher Tietze produced a study on abortion demographics at the request of the Population Council, a New York-based eugenics organization. In this report, Tietze confirmed previous research showing that when abortion is illegal, the abortion rate is much higher for white women than for black women, but that this completely reverses whenever abortion is legalized. At the time he published these findings, Tietze was a consultant to both Planned Parenthood and the National Abortion Federation. Other researchers within the eugenics and abortion movements were also documenting that easy access to abortion clinics produces higher abortion rates in the surrounding area. And at least one expert discovered that having a nearby clinic is a bigger factor in the black abortion rate than it is in the white abortion rate. At the same time this data is being circulated, Planned Parenthood and the rest of the abortion lobby were in the process of locating the vast majority of their facilities in minority neighborhoods. Then in 1974, a study was released on population control that had been conducted by researchers at three major universities. By analyzing data obtained from Planned Parenthood's own records, they determined that the number one factor in deciding whether a county in the United States provided free or low-cost family planning services was not poverty, but race. The researchers said their findings seem to support the contention of many civil rights activists that such programs are less intended to assist the poor 
than they are to control the growth of the black population. Birth control and abortion are turning out to be the great eugenic advances of our time. Frederick Osborne, founding member of the American Eugenics Society, 1973. The best way to hate a nigger is to hate him before he is born. Leander Perez, Louisiana State Judge, 1970. That's going to take us more into modern, current events. You heard that short clip there from the Corbett Report. I encourage you to check out all their work on Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood. Project Veritas also has been incredibly instrumental in helping expose all this. We're going to listen to another song from Jason Hine before we get going. Let's listen to Jay's Groove. Thank you so much for joining me. Stick with me through the show.
All right, I'm back online. Let's go ahead and continue on with the show. So why am I talking about this now, you may ask. I don't know if you guys ch- checked out this article from August 3rd, 2021. This went, this went pretty mainstream. There's lots of articles out there. A lot of major news outlets covered it. But Judicial Watch, they're good at getting all the real records. They want to find something out when it relates to government transparency. They usually, they usually figure it out. But let's check out the headline. New HHS documents reveal millions of federal funding for University of Pittsburgh human fetal organ harvesting project, including viable and full-term babies. Judicial Watch of the Center for Medical Progress announced today that they received 252 pages of new documents from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services that revealed nearly $3 million in federal funds were spent on the University of Pittsburgh's quest to become a, quote, tissue hub, unquote for human fetal tissue, ranging from 6 to 42 weeks gestation. These documents were obtained as part of the Freedom of Information Act lawsuit in which Judicial Watch represents CMP and is suing HHS after it failed to respond to an April 28, 2020 FOIA request seeking, among other things, the grant applications for University of Pittsburgh, quote, tissue hub and collection site, unquote. The documents reveal the following. The aims of the project listed in the original 2015 proposal were, quote, to develop a pipeline to the acquisition, quality control, and distribution of human genitourinary, urinary genital organs and function samples obtained through de- throughout development, 6 to 42 weeks gestation, and generate an ongoing resource to distribute fresh developmental human genitourinary gen- samples from various stages, 6 to 42 weeks, to the GoodMap Genitourinary Development Molecular Anatomy Project Atlas Projects. All that's a mouthful. It's kind of hard to pronounce, so I apologize for that. But in the proposal, Pittsburgh notes that it has been collecting fetal tissue for over 10 years, including liver, heart, gonads, legs, brain, genitourinary tissues, including kidneys, ureters, and bladders. Pitt noted in 2015, we have dispersed over 300 fresh samples collected from 77 cases. The collections can be significantly ramped up as material could have been accrued from as many as 725 cases last year. The Health Science Tissue Bank at Pitt is embedded with the Department of Pathology, thus providing rapid access to very high-quality tissue biological specimens. As a quote, Pitt also Boasts it has a number of internal connections as well as a, quote, strong working relationship with UPMC, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and the Department of Pathology, as well as three laboratories of the flagship UPMC hospitals. This includes a lab boasting a, quote, butcher boy bandsaw for sectioning bone, and a frozen section room has digital video feed to and from the operating rooms. This also allows for instantaneous discussions with the surgeons, as well as immediate show and tell for them. The proposal, ironically, also boasts about the laboratories at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. This is where it gets really disturbing here, but you got to pay attention to the language, what it's actually talking about. Later in the proposal, Pitt states that it records the, quote, warm ischemic time on our samples and takes steps to keep it at a minimum to ensure the highest quality biological specimens. The warm ischemic time refers to the amount of time an organ remains at body temperature after blood supply has been cut off. 
Warm ischemic time differs from cold ischemic time, which refers to the amount of time the organ is chilled. Pitt's statement suggests the time between the abortion and collection is minimal. The Pitt scientists note that, quote, all fetal tissue is collected through a collaborative process, including family planning, obstetrics, and pathology, and that the numbers of consents and collections has been steadily increasing. We are in an, in an excellent position to expand our services to include the needs of the GMAP Atlas projects. Pitt anticipated being able to harvest and distribute quality tissue and cells. I do not anticipate any major problems related to the acquisition and distribution of these tissues. Pitt's target goal, quote, is to have available a minimum of five cases, tissues, and if possible, other biologicals per week of gestational age for ages 6 to 42 weeks. This is where we start getting into race control and its sorted history with Planned Parenthood. Although this is, this is Pittsburgh, we're obviously not talking specifically about Planned Parenthood yet, but who else are they going to be planned, partnered with? You know what I mean? Like the University of Pittsburgh isn't doing abortions on the side. They're getting this from Planned Parenthood through this corporate partnership, basically. Pitt's proposal also included a racial target for harvesting of human fetal parts. Of its planned aborted subjects, Pitt desired 50% to be minority fetuses. The proposal suggests that the subjects be diverse because Pittsburgh is diverse. The U.S. Census Bureau shows the city of Pittsburgh is close to 70% white. Pitt's proposal requested more than $3.2 million over a five-year period. The documents show the NIH has funded at least $2.7 million so far for Pitt's human fetal tissue harvesting and hub. There's where you start to get... um, Fauci involved, right? You start to see the whole web between Fauci, Bill Gates, and other people creep into here on this financial incentive of these fetal tissue labs. It's it's pretty sick and disgusting. These documents show taxpayer money is being used to turn the University of Pittsburgh into a one-stop fetal human fetal tissue shop from procuring the tissue from elective abortions, subdividing the human remains to distributing and shipping the harvested tissue, stated Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton. <clears throat> We're going to go to an article here from May, which is a little bit earlier. This should have been a little bit more mainstream also, but we're going to talk more about some of these other experiments that they do. Obviously, we know they use aborted tissue for stem cell research. We understand that uh, there could be an argument there to be had, whether it's a viable medical technology to be performing. Here's an opinion piece. University of Pittsburgh won't explain its Planned Parenthood ties. Here we're going to start to talk about what are, in essence, the animal-human chimeras Alex Jones talked about. We will hear from Alex Jones on this, too, right after this. But here, I just want to give you a more graphic depiction of what exactly we're talking about here. We're going to find it right here. In one study published last year, this is from Newsweek, it's opinion piece, opinion piece by David Deleton from May 26th of this year. In one study published last year, Pitt scientists described scalping five-month-old aborted babies to stitch onto the backs of lab rats. They wrote about how they cut the scalps from the heads and backs of the babies, scraping off the excess fat under the baby's skin before stitching onto the rats. 
They've included photos of the baby's hair growing out of the scalps. Each scalp belonged to a little Pennsylvania baby whose head would grow the same hair as if he or she had not aborted for experiments with lab rats. Pitt's expl- explanation? Lab mice, not lab rats. The university witness told the committee indignantly. This is what we're talking about here. Once you're the way scientists see it, the technocrats see it, once you start experimenting and it's just human body parts or fetal tissue parts grafted onto animals, it's okay, right? The It is not human anymore. It is something else. It is a different organism, I would I guess, however you want to describe it, it's disturbing trying to talk to talk about these things like this, but this is the justification used to do such research as gain of function. This is the justification to keep using viruses and lung tissues and experimenting on how they affect certain populations. This is, this is what we're talking about here. If this, it's been a long slippery slope to what we've seen with the Wuhan lab leak, but we're talking about, very, very similar things here. It might not seem like it right off the bat, but it it's all connected. In fact, the published study used both rats and mice to grow the baby's scalps. How's this paid for? With a $430,000 grant from Dr. Anthony Fauci's NIAID office at the NIH. Pitt's witness implied that government NIH grants somehow did not concern taxpayers in Pennsylvania. Previously, I wrote about another Pitt scientist who developed a nightmarish protocol for harvesting the freshest, most pristine livers from five-month-old aborted babies in order to isolate massive numbers of stem cells for experimental transplants. This technique calls for aborting late-term fetuses alive via labor induction, rushing them to a sterile laboratory, washing them, and cutting them open to harvest the liver. The Pitt scientists received $3 million from the NIH. This might be the same story. This might be the same story breaking even further. This was before the one I just showed. The hearing, Pitt asserted without evidence that this experiment was done only in Italy and ended in 2013. But the Pitt scientists responsible published further research in 2019 and described obtaining the same uniquely massive 2 billion stem cell yield from complete fetal livers harvested in Pittsburgh indicating the same technique he outlined was still being used in America. With that, I try to make this a really nice segue into Alex Jones. This is on huge tube, UGE tube. I don't know what they are. This is an Infowars band.com video over a decade ago. I believe we're going to watch this clip. If you're here on Twitch, you're watching it. If you're listening to the podcast, We'll listen to it for a while. We'll let him outline everything as only Alex Jones can. Because over the weekend, I saw in the news of Australia, human-animal hybrids created amid Frankenstein warnings. Scientists in the UK have reportedly created more than 150 human-animal hybrid embryos in controversial secretive lab experiments that spread over three years. And there's another report here out of the Daily Mail uh, who also reported uh, on this issue. A lot of things concern me and hopefully concern you with all of this. But one issue is the media. Every time I've seen this reported in the last 15 years, 
it's always the first time it's being reported, and they always say it's been going on for three to five years. Well, the first time I saw this confirmed that human clones had been created but terminated before term, before they were born, was in the BBC. 95, 96. You can pull it up. I saw it again in 97, 98, 99. I've seen it in scientific publications. And in China, they have totally embraced this system. They're not only creating human animal clones that resemble humans, they've also created cows that are part human and create human breast milk in their udders. In the last hundred years, governments began working on bioweapons, the Imperial Japanese, the Germans, England, the United States, France, many other governments. And they always centered in and around race-specific bioweapons that would wipe out a certain, uh, quote, race of people, whether it was blacks, Arabs, Jews, governments have worked on them all. The problem in this research is they find that humans are so interconnected and share our genetics across the board that this is unfeasible until now. Now, the number one danger here is that governments, when they began to work on bioweapons, first tried to take zoological bioweapons like Ebola that affected apes and monkeys and cross it over to humans. And there's evidence that that's what's happened with Ebola. Now governments, in the name of defense, are working on airborne Ebola that will kill 99% of us that it comes in contact with. Then you discover that the ruling elite are obsessed with world government being a mechanism to carry out the orderly extermination of the global population. We cover that in my seminal film, Endgame, Blueprint for Global Enslavement, free here on the web at YouTube. At least for now, we're being censored more and more. Please get that film, get out to everyone you know. So you've got insects, animal genes, reptile genes being engineered into fish and being released open water. You've got human cross-species clones growing inside of cows so they can harvest the organs. Ladies and gentlemen, they talk about animal rights. What about human rights? They're mixing plant and animal with human. And this will allow cross-species diseases to spread easier into populations. It will give rise to mutant viruses and other uh, mutagenic uh, microorganisms that could create plagues the likes of which this earth has never seen and there are thousands of different laboratories across the world working on these systems we're already seeing clear evidence that genetically engineered crops are what's causing all of these incredible allergies it's what's destroying our immune systems more and more governments are moving to not even let the public know when they're eating gmo food all right That right there is the incomparable Alex Jones making the case as only he can, right? We're going to transfer this to the idea of using vaccines, viruses, and the weaponization of the media for global control as a way to control the population size, to affect policy, to create artificial crises. And today's champion of all this is definitely bill gates his father william gates senior this is widely known served on the board of planned parenthood you can find that information on your own i did find it on here but there's so much to cover i'm trying to keep this you know a little bit pithy but the bill gate the bill gates melinda gates foundation is basically nothing 
other than another umbrella organization dedicated to this idea of eugenics. This is an article from Robert F. Kennedy Jr., one of the leading foremost advocates for medical health and freedom in the world right now. You can find the link to, uh, I think it's the Children's Health Defense Fund on my page, where you can see an awesome video called Medical Racism, the New Apartheid. It's also still on Twitch right now for the time being. But here's this article right here from globalresearch.ca. Gates' globalist vaccine agenda. A win-win for pharma mandatory vaccination. Vaccines for Bill Gates are strategic philanthropy that feed as many vaccine-related businesses, including Microsoft's ambition to control a global vaccination ID enterprise and give them dictatorial control of health policy. Gates' obsession with vaccines seems to be fueled by conviction to save the world with technology. Promising his share of $450 million of $1.2 billion to eradicate polio, Gates took control of India's National Technical Advisory Group, this is from last year, this article, on the immunization, which mandated up to 50 doses of polio vaccines through overlapping immunization programs to children before the age of five. Indian doctors blamed the Gates campaign for a devastating non-polio acute flaccid paralysis epidemic that paralyzed 490,000 children beyond expected rates between 2000 and 2017. 2017, the Indian government dialed back Gates' vaccine regimen and asked Gates' vaccine policies to leave India, and PAFP rates dropped precipitously. The most frightening polio epidemics in Congo, Afghanistan, and the Philippines are all linked to vaccines. In 2017, the World Health Organization reluctantly admitted that the global explosion of polio is predominantly vaccine strain. The most frightening epidemics in Congo, Afghanistan, and the Philippines are all linked to vaccines. In fact, by 2018... 70% of global polio cases were vaccine strain. In 2014, the Gates Foundation funded tests of experimental HPV vaccines developed by GlaxoSmithKline and Merck of 23,000 young girls in remote Indian provinces. Approximately 1,200 suffered severe side effects, including autoimmune and fertility disorders. Seven died. Indian government investigations charged that Gates-funded researchers committed pervasive ethical violations, pressuring vulnerable village girls into the trial, bullying parents, forging consent forms, and refusing medical care to the injured girls. The case is now the country's Supreme Court. South African newspapers complained, we are guinea pigs for the drug makers. In 2010, the Gates Foundation funded a phase three trial of GSK's experimental malaria vaccine, killing 151 African infants and causing serious adverse effects, including paralysis, seizure, and febrile convulsions to 1,048 of the 5,949 children. During Gates' 2002 Menafrivac campaign in sub-Saharan Africa, Gates operatives forcibly vaccinated thousands of African children against meningitis. Approximately 50 of the 500 children vaccinated developed paralysis. South African newspapers complained, we are guinea pigs for the drug makers. Nelson Mandela's former senior economist, Professor Patrick Bond, describes Gates' philanthropic practices as ruthless and immoral. 2010, Gates committed $10 billion to the WHO, saying, we must make this decade, we must make this the decade of vaccines. A month later, Gates said in a TED talk that new vaccines could reduce population. In 2014, Kenya's Catholic Doctors Association accused the WHO of chemically sterilizing millions of unwilling Kenyan women with a tetanus vaccine campaign. 
Independent labs found a sterility formula in every vaccine tested. After denying the charges, WHO finally admitted it had been developing the sterility vaccines for over a decade. Similar accusations came from Tanzania, Nicaragua, Mexico, and the Philippines. A 2017 study showed that WHO's popular DTP vaccine is killing more African children than the disease it prevents. DTP-vaccinated girls suffered 10 times the death rate of children who had not yet received the vaccine. WHO has refused to recall the lethal vaccine, which it forces upon tens of millions of African children annually. Global, global public health advocates around the world accuse Gates of steering WHO's agenda away from the projects that are proven to curb infectious diseases, clean water, hygiene, nutrition, and economic development. The Gates Foundation only spends about $650 million of its $5 billion budget on these areas. They say he has diverted agency resources to serve his personal philosophy that good health only comes in a syringe. In addition to using his philanthropy to control WHO, UNICEF, Gavi, and PATH, those are all acronyms, Gates funds a private pharmaceutical company that manufactures vaccines and additionally is donating $50 million to 12 pharmaceutical companies to speed up development of a coronavirus vaccine. In his recent media appearances, Gates appears confident the COVID-19 crisis will now give him the opportunity to force his dictatorial vaccine programs on American children. Very uh, damning stuff from RFK. We have a couple more articles here. We have a more timely article from May 13, 2021. COVID-19 vaccines and fetal tissue, the science and controversy explained. Again, the use of fetal tissue has been instrumental in creating these new dictatorial vaccine mandates, this new explosion of medicine by syringe, and it's made possible by these weird human-animal chimera research, gain-of-function virus research, as we've seen the explosion of COVID. And Bill Gates has an obvious agenda it has to be depopulation sterilization agenda. I don't know if there's any other way to put it. You saw right there in that article, the WHO was forced to admit every one of those tetanus vaccines that there was a sterilization formula. What are we talking about, people? Let's get into this article. I'll read. We'll try to read most of it. This just explains in a very milquetoast way, I guess, some of the problems people might have with this, why it's so controversial to use vaccines from stem cells. In, 19, in 1972, Alex Vandereb, a molecular biologist, took cells from an aborted human embryo and cultured them in his lab in Leiden University in the Netherlands. The cells have since become immortal, meaning the descendants of the original cells have played a role in the research on numerous vaccines, including rubella, adenovirus, polio, rabies, chickenpox, Ebola, and most recently, several of the most widely used coronavirus vaccines. So funny, right, that Ebola and polio were thought to have been, let's just say, could have, could have been man-made manipulated outbreaks. That puts the Roman Catholic Church, which opposes abortion and any use of cells obtained for human embryos, in a tough spot. Since 2005, the Vatican has made an exception for vaccines 
for diseases that pose a, quote, grave danger and for which there are no, quote, morally acceptable alternatives. And it confirmed the stance for the coronaviruses in December. The morality of vaccination depends not only on the duty to protect one's own health, but also on the duty to pursue the common good. The absence of other means to stop or even prevent the epidemic, the common good may recommend vaccination, especially to protect the weakest and most exposed. Pope Francis took this advice to heart by taking Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine. However, in early March, Catholic bishops of the U.S. muddied the waters by calling out the Johnson & Johnson vaccine as having, quote, additional moral concerns, unquote. At issues, the precise role fetal cell lines played in the development of the vaccine. While Moderna and Pfizer use them in testing only, J&J also used them in production of its vaccine. If one has the ability to choose a vaccine, the bishop said, Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines should be chosen over Johnson & Johnson's. The bishop's moral concern arises from relative proximity of the J&J vaccine to the evil of abortion. Fetal cell lines played a vital role in the development of all three vaccines. Moderna and Pfizer used Van der Ebb's original cell line called HEK-293 in the testing of their coronavirus vaccines. That is, scientists first developed the vaccines using their mRNA technologies and subsequently tested them on lab-cultured HEK-293 cells, ancestors of the original cells that Van der Ebb took from an embryo almost 50 years ago, basically cloned, cloned cells. Johnson & Johnson used a different fetal cell line called PER.C6, that was cultured at Vendereb's lab in 1995, so more recent. While Moderna and Pfizer used fetal cell lines for testing their vaccine after it was already produced, J&J used fetal cell lines as tiny, quote, factories, unquote, that produced the active ingredient in its vaccine. It was inside PER.C6 cells where a gene for the coronavirus spike protein was attached to a modified adenovirus. The vaccine works when the adenovirus infects human cells and the added gene instructs the cells to manufacture the spike protein, which elicits an immune response. Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are morally acceptable, according to the Archdiocese of New Orleans, because their scientists did not use the cells in the, quote, manufacturing process, unquote, which means that, quote, the connection to abortion is extremely remote, unquote. The J&J vaccine, by contrast, is, quote, morally compromised as it uses the abortion-derived cell line in development and production of the vaccine as well as the testing, unquote. Public health officials worry that this judgment will give anti-vaccination groups ammunition to sow doubt about vaccines in general and coronavirus vaccines in particular. Diehard anti-vaxxers use it. Arthur Kaplan, a bioethicist at New York University, told Newsweek, they'll say Catholics won't take it because there's something wrong with it. They don't care about the details. They're just going to stir the pot. And it's a pot they need to stir because they've been losing the safety argument in the past few years. Here's a question I have for you listening out there. If you were injected with a vaccine developed from fetal cell line and animal research, at least fetal cloned fetal cell lines, are, do you feel less human? Is this an attempt to make us, quote, more human than human to quote a Rob Zombie song, but in reality, it's negative eugenics in the form of vaccine health. Is this really supposed to be for the betterment of the common good and the society? Are progressives and science, 
are they are they looking out for us or is there something a lot more sinister going on is there a dark sinister thread through the progressivism of the 20th century those are some questions i have right now we're going to listen to one more song and then we'll finish up with the last article Rearview Mirror, Jason Hine. Bobby Cosmic Radio 33 on Twitch. Follow America Unhinged Podcast on Spotify, Google, Stitcher, everywhere else you can find podcasts. We're going to go to our last article here, which I think really rounds everything out. It really brings everything home. It's a great article from The Guardian, a uh, an opinion piece from Jonathan Friedland. And I think... Uh, I walked you through the birth of American eugenics, how we're actually the homeland for this kind of research that we imported from Francis Galton, Darwin, and uh, had some mainstream advocates such as Margaret Sanger, uh, Jesse Jackson, honestly, in the 70s and 80s. Other other notable figures really mainstreamed this line of uh, pro-choice, liberal progressivism as if it's better for the common good than that. In that kind of line of thinking, I think we've become less human. We've lost our humanity. But look at this article right here from February 7th, 2012. Eugenics, the skeleton rattles loudest in the left's closet. Socialism's one-time interest in eugenics is dismissed as an accident of history, but the truth is far more unpalatable. Does the past matter? 
When confronted by facts that are uncomfortable, but which relate to people long dead, should we put them aside and, to use a phrase very much of our time, move on? And there's a separate but related question. How should we treat the otherwise admirable thought or writings of people when we discover that those same people also held views we find repugnant? Those questions are triggered in part by the early responses to Pantheon, my new novel published this week under the pseudonym Sam Bourne. The book is a thriller set in the Oxford on Yale in 1940, but it rests on several true stories. Among those is one of the grisliest skeletons of the cupboards of the British intellectual elite, a skeleton that rattles especially loudly inside the closet of the left. It is eugenics, the belief that society's fate rested on its ability to breed more of the strong and fewer of the weak. So-called positive eugenics meant encouraging those of greater intellectual ability and, quote, moral worth to have more children, while negative eugenics sought to urge or even force those deemed inferior to reproduce less often or not at all. The aim was to increase the overall quality of the national herd, multiplying the thoroughbreds and weeding out the runts. Such talk repels us now. But in the pre-war era, it was the common sense of the age. Most alarming, many of its leading advocates were found among the luminaries of the Fabian and Socialist left, men and women revered to this day. Thus, George Bernard Shaw could insist that, quote, only, the only fundamental and possible socialism is the socialization of the selective breeding of man, even suggesting in a phrase that chills the blood that defectives be dealt with by means of a, quote, lethal chamber. Such thinking was not alien to the great liberal titan mastermind of the welfare state, William Beveridge, who argued that those with general defects should be denied not only the vote, but civil freedom and fatherhood. Indeed, a desire to limit the numbers of the inferior were written into modern notions of birth control from the start. That great pioneer of contraception, Mary Stopes, honored with a postage step in 2008, was a hardline eugenicist, determined that the hordes of defectives be reduced in number, thereby placing less of a burden on the fit. Stopes later disinherited her son because he had married a short-sighted woman, thereby risking a less-than-perfect grandchild. Yet what looks kooky or sinister in 2012 struck the pre-war British left as solid and sensible. Harold Lasky, stellar LSE professor, co-founder of the Left Book Club, and one-time chairman of the Labor Party, cautioned that the time is surely coming when society look upon the production of a weakling as a crime against itself. Meanwhile, JBS Haldan, admired scientist and socialist, warned that, quote, civilization stands in real danger from overproduction of undermen. That's Untermenschen in German. I'm afraid even the Manchester Guardian was not immune. When a parliamentary report in 1934 backed voluntary sterilization of the unfit, a Guardian editorial offered warm support endorsing the sterilization campaign, the eugenicist soundly urge. If it's any comfort, the new statesman was in the same camp. According to Dennis Sowell, whose book The Political Gene charts the impact of Darwinian ideas on politics, the eugenics movement's definition of unfit was not limited to the physically and mentally impaired. It held, he writes, quote, that most of the behavioral traits that led to poverty were inherited, and short that the poor were genetically inferior to the educated middle class, unquote. It was not poverty that had to be reduced or even eliminated. It was the poor. Hence, the enthusiasm of John Maynard Keynes, director of the Eugenics Society from 1937 to 1944 for contraception, Essential because the working class was too, quote, drunken and ignorant, unquote, to keep its numbers down. 
We could respond to all this the way we react when reading of Churchill's dismissal of Gandhi as a, quote, half-naked fakir, unquote, or indeed of his own attraction to eugenics by saying it was all a long time ago when different norms applied. That is a common response when today's left liberals are confronted by a eugenicist record of their forebears, reacting as if it were an all an accident of time, a slip-up by creatures of their era who should not be judged by today's standards. Except this was no accident. The Fabians, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, and their ilk were not attracted to eugenics because they briefly forgot their left-wing principles. The harder truth is that they were drawn to eugenics for what were then good left-wing reasons. They believed in science and progress, and nothing was more cutting-edge and modern than social Darwinism. Man now had the ability to intervene in, its, in his own evolution. Instead of natural selection and the law of the jungle, there would be planned selection. And what could be more socialist than planning the Fabian faith that the gentleman in Whitehall really didn't know best? If the state was going to plan the production of motor cars in the national interest, why should it not do the same for the production of babies? The aim was to do what was best for society, and society would clearly be better off if there were more of the strong to carry fewer of the weak. What was missing was any value placed on individual freedom, even the most basic freedom of a human being to have a child. The middle class of privilege felt quite ready to remove that right from those they deemed unworthy of it. Eugenics went into steep decline after 1945. Most recoiled from it once they saw where it led to the gates of Auschwitz. The infatuation with an idea horribly close to Nazism was steadily forgotten, but we need a reckoning with the shaming past. Such a reckoning would focus less on today's advances in selective embryology and the ability to screen out genetic diseases than on the kind of loose talk about the underclass that recently enabled the prime minister to speak of neighbors from hell and the poor as if the two groups were synonymous. Progressives face a particular challenge to cast off a mentality that can too easily regard people as means rather than ends. For in this respect, a movement is just like a person. It never entirely escapes its roots. That was from Jonathan Freeland. And with that, I'd like to leave you guys this evening on America Unhinged podcast. Thank you so much for listening, for joining me. We got one more song to take us through. And have a good night.